Hello, and welcome back to Searching Inward, a podcast brought to you by Restore Small Groups here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm George Stahl, joined by the radiant, smiling, multi-talented beam of light, which is Anna Bryant, (laughs) and the soft-spoken but wise, loving soul, which is Scott Real. I got to get these guys smiling right from the beginning because uh, an open mouth is a much wider space for the, the heart to speak from. So, <laughs> Love it. But, Scott, although you're, uh, your favorite sports team is the Cleveland Browns, uh. and they can't teach you nothing about winning, uh, you are learning and teaching us uh, what it means to win at life and guiding us all, both of you, on the path of hope, wholeness, health, and healing. So here we are. Well, we were away for a little bit, but we're back. Um, and there was a real big event that went on uh, last week. So for those of you who are listening, uh, we celebrated here at Restore 20 years. Actually, it's been 22 years, but because of the pandemic, we got to do our 20th celebration of hope. So uh, why don't you guys tell us a little about which, the takeaway, which you was most inspiring about. We'll start with you, Anna. Oh, my um, goodness. I go first? Yes. Oh, y'all. I am so excited because this, um, as, you, as you may or may not know, I'm I'm the newest member of the Restore staff. I've only been here um, coming up on my one-year anniversary. So this was my first opportunity to um, attend a celebration of hope. And it was amazing to be a part of, uh, to get to connect with all of these people that have been a huge part of our ministry for so long that have really helped lay the foundation of what we're being, what we're doing now, uh, where we've been and where we're going uh, forward. It's just, it was so exciting and wonderful to just see the big picture of what God has done with a few faithful people and um, a can-do attitude <laughs> and to see the lives that have been impacted just globally. Um, it was amazing, and I'm so grateful to be a part of this organization. It was just a wonderful experience to get to celebrate that. And were you able to celebrate because you put a lot of it together? <laughs> so um, were you actually really enjoying it? Um, you know, the Loveless event staff was amazing because okay. they wrapped up a nice little to-go dinner for me to enjoy once I got home. Well, there's a uh, shout out to the was, staff yeah. there. They, they did a great job. <laughs> and you, if, if you were sweating it at all, you didn't know it. <laughs> so you were beaming with a smile and it was a great celebration. And Scott, um, I know you, you had a video that took you back 20 years. I was waiting to see a picture with, with, with long hair or something that, <laughs> that never did appear. Uh, <laughs> no, I've been this way. <laughs> You've been this way for 20 years. <laughs> Just keep getting better looking. <laughs> well, what, what was your takeaway? You know, because of the break we had because of the pandemic, it was, it was nice to have that reunion again. Um, I remember the first one we did, which would have been 22 years ago. Um, we thought, you know, let's take one night and celebrate the hope that Christ is bringing into our life, who's restoring into our lives. Mm-hmm. And that very first one, I think we had 50 people come, and we, we did it out at the Camp Wedgie at the Y on uh, Percy Priest Lake, and um, we, uh, we roasted marshmallows and had hot dogs and things like that. I mean, it was just so laid back. And it grew into what you, we had the other night. And so um, it's uh, the stories from around the world to see the impact. Um, you know, your perspective of time changes as you age. You realize one year is like the blink of an eye, you know. And so I remember 22 years ago like it was yesterday and all the faces and all the names and all the 
people that God has brought into our path. Um, it brought the world. You know, you always have that saying, the world is much smaller than, you know, you, you can really understand. And to see people that were there from, we had our friends from Africa came, yeah. from Scotland. Um, we had video, and Beverly talked about Belize and when our friends in Ukraine. It's just, you know, we, we've touched lives all over the world through this one little ministry. And, um, and I think the reason it is because from that very first Celebration Hope is people are starving for hope. Um, and the hope that I think that the world is longing for is that it, we can change, that there's hope that that's possible. And Jesus said, all things are possible with God. And, um, and we've seen it. And those testimonies the other night were really powerful. So, yeah. It's amazing the, uh, just hearing the stories of resilience and overcoming and healing. Um, yeah, it just has a way of lifting the soul. Like, there's nothing like hearing someone else's story that some way touches your own journey that gives you hope that it's possible for you, too. Well, think about it. And historically, the greatest books, the stories that have been written that people remember and have read for thousands of years are stories of redemption, of overcoming. And because uh, it gives us all hope that that can occur. Well, you, uh, you had it on the table for all of the tenders there, Celebration of Hope. Uh, but is it the first chapter? First, or first three. The and first three it, chapters of your new book, Journey of Transformation. Um, what do we need to know about this? It really completes the, the journey that Journey to Freedom initiates. Journey to Freedom initiates change, brings us aware of these places in our lives that we need to pay attention to and move towards transformation into. But uh, it really doesn't provide that path. This book uh, provides that path, which I believe is deeper into our stories, into our paradigms, um, what we really, really believe because that's the foundation of all of our responses to life, that, that lens at which we see everything through. This book will uh, take you through that. And it's everything we've, that I've learned in 20-some years. And um, I've, hopefully I've gained some wisdom <laughs> in that journey. But I think it's, uh, from what I've heard from people and what, who have read it, uh, they feel it's, it's, it's really going to be a great addition to the process for us. It will take people into that place that I don't think that they would naturally, most are not going to go to. Um, the narrow road is Christ responds to it as, refers to it as. And so um, I'm excited. What, when, when can we expect this, this new book to be out? January. January. All right. So all, all, the, all of you listeners that have gone through Journey to Freedom 10, 12, 15 times, January, you'll have a new group. <laughs> I'll I, I tell you what, yeah. this, this book is so full of hope. Yeah. It's just beaming with hope, um, and and it is the path. It is the path, and it's really, truly, the only path that leads us to true transformation, to a new life. Um, so, I'm hoping that it will impact thousands of lives around the world. For well, God. we are excited about it, which leads us to today's episode, which is entitled "Hope Restored." So maybe some of us don't realize, but hope is actually a renewable energy. Um, there could be some of you listening that think that hope has passed you by or it's not possible, but um, hope actually can help move us beyond the limits of our imagination to see more clearly and live more fully. And as Emily Dickerson says, which I love, 
she says, hope inspires the good to reveal itself. And so we want to talk about that today. Um, how do we move toward a restored hope, no matter where we find ourselves? So, Scott, in the book, you begin with um, getting free from shame. And you see shame as being very central to uh, holding us back um, and us not being able to move toward hope because of shame. So why don't you start there and help us understand uh, this first day in week four. I think it's probably one of the most significant chapters in the whole book because it introduces to the reader, to the participant, um, the impact that shame, toxic shame has on us. This was years ago when I first started my recovery. Um, I found Bradshaw's book, Healing the Shame to Bind You, which is a classic. Um, he is the one who came up with the term toxic shame. And what he found was he starts his book off by explaining that shame was how it came into existence, into, into human existence, and where it came from, and how that um, healthy shame know, helps me know I have limits, mm -hmm. I need others, and I definitely need God, and I'm not God. And that's what, when he created Adam and Eve, that was, it was good that they recognized that. And then when shame came into their lives and they hid which is the first thing they did with shame. Um, he talks about this transition that shame makes when it goes from I made a mistake to I am a mistake. When shame becomes an identity, when, uh, as he says, it, it ruptures itself, it fractures itself, we reject ourselves, and in essence, is what it does. And it's what we were talking about earlier today, that God created us to be expanding we are a part of the expansion of the universe, and now with science, we know that the universe is expanding. And we, in growing into our full potential of love, we ourselves all play a part in that expansion. Well, there's a force that works to thwart that, to disrupt that, and it's shame. That's why it's the most destructive force in the universe, because my grace and love and hope, I'm expanding into, I'll be a better father, I'll be better my work, I'm a better, better spouse, just a better human being because it's all in that desire to love and to expand that love. And here comes shame telling me that I'm not lovable, that I'm not capable of these things. Um, and then I read Anatomy of the Soul by Thompson, and in Thompson's sequel to that book was The Soul of Shame, and he just really expanded even more on how disruptive shame is. Um, and he says that, that grace and positive beliefs and love about myself, those become integrated thoughts and the brain becomes integrated in the spirit and we expand. But shame disintegrates that process and it disrupts. And then I get into isolation, I get into the false self, all driven by shame. And so I don't, I don't become the man or the woman that God created me to be. Uh, and what I love about this information is that we all, every single human being on the planet, we have a part in that story of love that God is growing. And so for us to expand as a human race, love and has to be at the center of it and the hope of that. And, and we need to know how shame infiltrates itself into our existence, into our individual lives and how it's going to disrupt and and, and then I, and I, as I tell people all the time, once I quit expanding 
I quit hoping. I quit growing. In essence, I quit living. I can exist and really not be alive. And, and that's what shame does. It just, because that's what a false self is. It's not me. But, it's, but if I have the internal belief that if you truly know me, you will not love me. And that's the message that I'm hearing from my shame. So that's why we have it in Trinity of Freedom, when we do this week, the, uh, we make them do a little drawing. And Anna's drawing was much better than mine, by the way. But, <laughs> but that's Bradshaw's theory, that at the center circle is, of the being is toxic shame, which his message is, I am a mistake. It's not that you won't love me, it's that I'm not lovable. And so from that circle, the next circle expands out is the false self. And Bradshaw makes a really powerful point that the false self is the most fertile soil for addictions to be and attachments because we're isolated, we're alone. I'm not true. And then that leads to addiction, the next circle, then that leads to more shame, and that leads to a deeper false self, and it just, and it just becomes a vicious cycle that we get caught up in. Um, and then you can see that if I turn to addictions, that even increases the shame and the vulnerability that I feel towards myself. Um, and if, if shame can get me to reject myself, as, as Thompson says, it, it worked its way into our boardroom and into our bedroom and everywhere in between in our society. Shame is at work to thwart God's plan, his greatest plan of the expansion of love. And so that's such an interesting way to think about it. Like, because uh, you're kind of, you're putting shame as the antithesis of hope. And shame being the thing that's more constrictive, sucking the life out of you, hope being this breathing thing that um, breathes life into us. Um, that's, that's a very interesting way to, to think about this. And you think about what is it we all are hoping for? What are we really hoping for? It's love. It's, it's mm -hmm. love. And so if there's a force trying to tell me that I'm not lovable and that's not possible because of who I am or who I'm not, yeah. then it's just so destructive. Well, Anna, you uh, you witness to this in groups regularly, um, and I'm always curious how you see this happening in others. Like, I imagine sometimes when people come to a group and they have some heavy burden or some shameful thing that they're carrying, um, that the moment of sharing that, you might even see shame on their face, and and then, but as people gracefully and lovingly listen and witness to that. Um, hope does emerge, and uh, shame can diminish, and, and hope grows. So, how, how do, what does that look like in a group experience? One of the nice things about coming to a group is um, there is, generally speaking, no expectation for you to bring your false self because you're showing up to a group of people that don't know you, that don't have an expectation of you to be anything to them or for them. Um, so. You, you don't necessarily have to, um, I won't say that you don't have anything to hide because I think we all feel like, oh gosh, there are parts of us that really are not lovely. But um, these other people, when they show up, they don't have any skin in the game in your life, so to, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like they're just there as a support system. Um, so whether you are your, your best false self or whether you're just your authentic flawed self really doesn't make a difference in their day-to-day -day life. And so people just have this, um, this sense of freedom to be able to show up very authentically and say like, hey, 
this is me, this, this is my struggle, this is my path, this is, um, and then when they're accepted and not rejected because, you know, you experience that universality that we are all flawed and we are all wounded and we all have things that we are carrying and trying to overcome, um, that kind of helps break through that, um, that toxic shame and then that need to continue to perpetuate the false self because you recognize that, okay, these people in this room have seen my ugly, they have seen my shame, they have seen all the things that I try to just um, cover up to the world at large, and they still love and accept me. So perhaps the true authentic person that I am is, love, is lovable and acceptable just as I am. And that is when hope begins to grow and we are truly free to begin to change and transform our lives because we are loved unconditionally. Yeah, it's like uh, my experience in some of these groups are you do hear someone open up more deeply about a painful, shameful, um, disappointing aspect of themselves. And what is it that makes you want to go deeper? It's like what spaces do we have in our world where uh, we feel safer and safer to go deeper with something that is broken, and yet it feel helpful and good and healing. Like, it, it is love. To, 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 to f- experience that and find it, it actually draws us deeper within ourselves to be more whole in places that we feel broken. Well, that's why when Thompson Anatomy, you know, Anatomy of the Soul said that there's no greater need for all human beings than the experience of being fully known. Because... That's the, the, so the antidote to shame, toxic shame, is exposure. Hmm. Yet exposure is what drives us to the false self because we're terrified of, if you know me, truly know me, all the mistakes I've made, all the flaws, all my weaknesses, you will reject me. And that becomes the internal belief. That becomes the, the paradigm which I live with. That's what I believe about myself. That's the lens in which I see everything through. I'm going to hide. Of course I'm going to hide. It's self-preservation. And yet we know that that is the most dangerous place to be, isolated. So that's why they say that the human brain won't even work in isolation. We truly need those relationships that Anna's talking about where you truly know me. It transforms, actually it transforms the neural pathways in our our minds. So it's physiological. It's not just in our imaginations that our, our bodies actually experience this in, in a, a more healthy way. And I don't know how many times I've heard, this is my greatest experience in small groups, and I've said it before, somebody say this, this is the first time I've ever told anybody this, and then they name it. Some form of abuse, some horrible mistake, some, some tragedy, that, some addiction, just something that they're so ashamed of that they hide. And, and just think, if shame can get me to hide, it's done its job. Right, because if you're hiding, you're not fully showing up. You're not fully present. Exactly. In I'm, life. I'm not me. I'm afraid to be me, the me that God created me to be. See, that's why, to me, the, the, and people ask me all the time, what is transformation? I become a new me. No, you finally become home to the true you. Yeah, the which person is what, created to be. Uh, yeah, exactly. And that's what Gerald May says in Addiction of Grace. In the end, we consecrate the journey it's no longer about just taking care of our addictions. It's about saying yes to God, coming home to my true self with God. And the freedom of that, and that's what I think what Anna was talking about, in a group where I meet people who are, are strangers, 
They, and again, as we've talked about before, two or three are gathered in my name as the body of Christ. There it is. And they're reaching out to me with, we've heard your story. We've heard your, this horrible thing that you've been hiding from and you're feeling deep shame from toxically. And here's a message from us. We believe in you, we love you, and we will never, ever abandon you. But that can only happen if I expose myself. And I'm telling you, we're terrified, petrified of exposure. Would you guys say that part of what you might experience in a group like that, that you call love from others, um, because the next part of this is the pursuit of God. And if God is love, isn't part of what we're experiencing in the group is not just each other, but it's this grace, it's this mystery of love that comes. Oh, it's divine, yes. unquestionably. Yeah. Like when you are in a room of people who are showing up and present to one another uh, in the most empathetic, unjudgmental way, you cannot deny that there's divinity in that room. There's yes. no doubt. No doubt. Well, Scott, in the book uh, on day 20, you, you tell a story about uh, the makers of Snickers, the, the commercial they made, which I think is just great. It kind of leads us into this, in this next point. So let me, let, me, let me read a part of this. But um, it's a commercial. It's portraying this vindictive God. It's behind this massive desk on a fluffy cloud in heaven. And there's people lined up. And this God is judging. I guess the first person in line is just being judged harshly. <laughs> But some young person who's impatient in the middle of the line uh, steps out of line and says, uh, why isn't this line moving? And the cloud opens up and that guy falls out of the heavens and God says, it's moving now. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, that is such a great humorous story of how we actually think about God when we're in need of love or when we're in need of being restored in some way that somehow... God is vindictive and is going to make us pay as opposed to help lead us and guide us to new life and, and restoration. So obviously in this portion of, of this week, you're talking about how we imagine God has a lot to do with how we experience God. Yeah, I mean, what we believe, again, is our paradigm. And I'll tell you, when I wrote this 17 years ago, I did not know, like I know now, just how important that chapter is, what I believe about how God sees me. Uh, it's, it's everything. Um, and what I have experienced in myself is that I project onto God the, own, the, the same cynicism that I have towards myself, I project onto God. I doubt, you know. Um, and again, shame works its way into that voice saying, there's, there's no way God is going to care. Look at what you've done. I mean, you know, so that rejection drives us to this, which is driven by the belief, which creates the narrative. And, um, I mean, think about how instinctively you'll make real derogatory comments about yourself and your narrative. Hmm. Right. But I can, can say that I have seen and experienced that, that narrative can really begin to change when you are in that loving, accepting community where you are authentic. I think sometimes we kind of um, maybe lie to ourselves that if we just keep it tamped down really tightly, like even God won't know how terrible we are. But yeah. when we when we um, 
you know, like when we come together in a group and we share things that are hard or hurtful or like shameful and we get that, that acceptance and that empathy, I think that begins to transform really our view of God because if we can see other flawed humans extending grace and love and compassion, then how can we not therefore begin to transfer that to our view of how God operates? Because we see it, we're experiencing it in the flesh, maybe for the first time for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I don't have a lot of original quotes, but this is a Scott Rue original quote. And I wrote it years ago in my journal. Uh, I should have put it in a book, but it's, it's exactly what Anna's saying. And I said that um, grace has its greatest potential to transform our lives where it meets our truth. And that group, if I'm, and we see it all the time, people finally find the courage because they're starving to tell their truth. And then they expose themselves, they're vulnerable, and they risk it all. And then they get back the message, okay, we've just heard your worst. You know what? We love you, we are for you, and we will never abandon you. And I'm telling you, that's when a life changes. That's when, what? You mean you would love me knowing all that about me? Because that's what we long for. Can, can I truly be known by you and you stay? Yeah, which is a, a representation and embodiment of God's love for mm -hmm. us. Like, it's, it's hard to believe that. It is hard. If you can't experience it in an embodied way, in the flesh, you know, and obviously that's what we learn from Christ, but we experience that from another that opens us up. You know, it's it seems counterintuitive to think that what God really wants is authenticity and vulnerability. Uh, that matters more to him than our perfection or our propping ourselves up. So, but for many of us, that doesn't seem like the path to experience God. It seems like the path that would push God away, but that's not the truth. Well, it's just so systemic in our society. Put your best self forward all the time. Present yourself in a certain way. And... And don't disclose, you know, keep all that other junk. I call it my shadow self. I have a shadow side. And that's where my weaknesses, my flaws, my mistakes, and all those things are there. And I know they're there, and I know this part about me, but you don't. But if I dare to share it to you, if I give myself the courage to say, you know what? And um, I can't remember who the author says, but there is great risk no, actually it was Thompson. He says, great risk in exposing our truth to another person because it gives you the power to, you could say, Scott, I can't handle that goodbye. You know, but it's necessary. But we need to have discernment where and whom we present that to. But eventually, and I think about, I was talking to my friend yesterday, anxiety. So much of anxiety comes from this fear of you're going to reject me and I'm not going to be good enough. I'm going to fail. And our society just, as Anne was saying, it, it positions us always trying to be propping ourselves up with a false self. 
And that's why I believe false selves are such a gateway to depression and anxiety because it's not me. And the pressure and the weight of that, the longer I live in that and carry that, it just weighs me down, weighs me down, weighs me down, which is what Parker Palmer wrote about in his journey through depression. It was when he finally realized, somebody told him, don't look at depression as the enemy, but could it be a gift? Could it be a friend pressing you down to your true self? And um, Brene Brown says, wherever you can find those groups, wherever you can find that healing community, run to the sprint to get in those places where you can be known. You called it, and Anna, you, you want, maybe want to speak to this, but you called it a case of mistaken identity. That when we identify with the false self more than the true self and really believe that's who we are, um, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, like we're, we're trying to become what we feel like is palatable and acceptable to the world at large, that we have to mold ourselves into, um, into something that's acceptable instead of understanding that we are acceptable in our natural created state, just that uh, perfection is not required, that God never expected us to be perfect, um, and that it is indeed not even possible for us to be perfect. Um, but we don't have to be perfect to be acceptable. We are loved and valued just as we are, and being able to own who we are and not um, not try to recreate ourselves into something that we feel like other people want us to be. Um, that is a huge... <laughs> something that we truly want to be. Right, right. That's part of the experience of hope and moving away from shame is that you discover that this is not just something that you hope, it's something deep down you want to be more like that because it's who, who you truly are. It makes it's who sense. we're created to be, like, yeah. you know? Well, we're talking here about is intimacy, true intimacy, which is the definition of intimacy. Into me you see. I'm going to let you see in here and see the truth. And when I open myself up to you and I take that risk and you embrace me, that is what transforms our lives. Those are the relationships. That's why that, um, this Surgeon General that was under Obama, he wrote a book about his experience of working with the people across the United States in his, during that time. And he came back with that the, the mental health was tragic. And he says, we had a loneliness epidemic, an isolation epidemic. And he says, people were not truly connecting, that they were hiding behind false selves and, and, and all the physical ailments that follow that. We were not meant to be alone. It's one of the first things God talks about in the Bible. Well, the main way that I am alone is through shame and a false self. So identity is at the heart of a changing life. It's identifying the future, true friends, um, weakness, our true selves. And I know in the book you say that intimacy increases dramatically, when it increases dramatically in relationships, um, when both people are becoming more aware of accepting of themselves. So, like, actually being more accepting of ourselves draws us toward each other and draws others to us. Right. We can't so, give away what we don't have. And if we don't accept ourselves fully, how could we ever truly accept somebody else in their flawed state as well? Because otherwise I'm going to be lonely in my relationship with you. If I can't be my true self with you, if I can't reveal to you everything, if I have to hide that because the belief that, well, if, I, if you see this, 
you're going to be gone. And so I got to hide. And I'm, so I'm all, now I'm really alone. And I'm just controlling my environment. I mean, I'm not denying that it takes incredible courage, especially the greater the relationships that we have, the more they mean to us. It, it is, takes, takes courage. But I think we, we can learn this in small groups, in this sacred space that we talk about. And then as I get stronger, then I can take it into my individual relationships. And I realize that the true, true loving relationships, I can be me. Mm. And it takes courage. It does. Small but, groups are a great place to practice that courage. Yeah. And maybe one of the things that can draw us into courage is the promise of hope. That we're not just being courageous to be more deeply shamed or uh, to be hurt or set back more. That we're moving toward courage because it actually has a promise of hope. So let's talk about that. Because that's ultimately what this week ends with is that restored hope and we're moving toward what does hope promise us? Right. We, we definitely want to, you know, we need to recognize and understand the impact of shame, but we don't want to leave it there. We want to hurdle past that so that we can move on to hope because it is hope that ultimately brings life change and transformation. And so um, without that, we are going to be kind of stuck in that shame cycle. So um we're not we're not wired to li to live purposeless lives. Um, obviously, there's a global mental health crisis because of that, and um, I think it's because people spend so much of their time on like ultimately meaningless activities in our um, in our day and age. Like we just spend a ton of time distracting ourselves rather than really engaging in things that are um, that further connect us to others. Um, and so therefore there's like a, a bit of meaninglessness with that and therefore like just a lack of hope. And so I think one of the greatest ways that we can cultivate hope is to like really work on cultivating meaningful relationships in our lives um, because that helps us to see kind of like where we're moving forward to uh, experience that connection so that we are not isolated um, and to have purpose, like when you're connected to, closely connected to other people, um, you you have a vested interest in their well-being as well as your own, and that gives great meaning to your own life. When you have something greater than yourself to invest in, that produces actually a great amount of hope. It expands us. It does. Like hope expands us even beyond ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, hope is this thing that. We could be healing, but we're also in some meaningful way maybe helping others heal because we're healing too. Well, uh, Scott, I'd like to end on this. Uh, you talk a lot about open-ended hope, but I want to read. Uh, you had a quote in there from Emily Barnes that kind of talks about this promise of hope. She says, hope requires strength, sometimes all the strength you can muster. But hope also gives you strength, and hope energizes. Hope moves you forward. When you dare to hope, you can do so much more than you ever thought. So there is this promise of hope, but there's a particular way that we have to move toward hope. And you talk about it as being open-ended. What, what, what does that mean? How does that work out? Any hope that I have tied to a predetermined outcome, Henry now says it's just wishes. It's, 
driven by the ego, wanting to control. Um, and, and, and it's not that I don't hope for certain outcomes. I mean, you know, I have to go in for, um, I have a heart defect that I just found out in the last three years. So now once a year I gotta go in and they examine it and they tell me good news or bad news. So I hope every year that, and I really do, I hope and pray that I'm gonna get good news. But I also know that I cannot control what they're gonna find. Um, and so if my hope is tied to just that, then I set myself up for, for failure. And, and that's what I try to tell people. If my hope is tied to a predetermined outcome and what I hope that outcome is does not occur, that leads me to despair and the definition of despair is hopelessness. We need a hope that is greater, that's open-ended, as Henry now says. It's not in the circumstances or the wishes, but it's in the promises of God. And, and so I had to prepare myself once a year when I go in there for those tests that I'm not tying my hope to, because I have no control, really none whatsoever, on what they're going to tell me, what they're going to find. They could say, looks great, you know, keep this up, you, you can live to 100. Or they could say, doesn't look good, we're going to have to do open heart surgery, and it's, you're, you're in real trouble. Um, uh, so where's my hope? So I try to position myself with Christ that whatever happens, I know you will be with me. And, uh, and my life is in your hands anyhow, and that's where I put my hope. Um, and that I will use whatever amount of time I have, and I will use it to the fullest. Um, that does not mean I, won't, I'm, I don't feel fear. You know, it's sadness. And there's a loneliness, and nobody can take that test for me. Nobody gets to experience that for me. I have, you know, so I feel my feelings. But hope keeps a person alive within time. That's one of my favorite quotes I've ever found. Um, and I really believe that's true, that a human being, we were, the way that God created us to, to be forward thinking and looking forward, we must have hope. Um, my favorite verse in the whole Bible is in Romans, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Then you, were over, then you will overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's a pretty profound verse. Um, and that, that hope propels me into today and into tomorrow and into the future. Um, and I'm not lamenting in this dark place of, well, it's over, it's done. You know, um, I was thinking about that the other day, just how important it is that there's this hope that I have that even when I do leave this body, that I will continue on and there'll be even more for me to do. And the journey is just, and it's so far beyond anything I can imagine anyway. Um, and that, if I stay in that place, and also I'm surrounded with people that I can be truthful with about, hey, I'm kind of scared about this, this upcoming test. Uh, you know, maybe you'll come with me, you know, stuff like that. But it's, hope is everything for a human being. Um, it's what makes us get up in the morning. Um, that's why I believe God is hope. He is, he is, in the Greek word motus, he is the mover, the initial mover that keeps me going and keeps me living. Um, and so our groups are full of hope.
You know, recently I went through probably one of the, if not the darkest night of the soul I've ever had in my life, and uh, I was struggling to find a hope. And I, and I found myself facing probably more than ever in my life the experience of trusting God with the outcome of my future. And I had to truly give it to him and place, and I prayed that prayer of that verse, the God, and I put my name to it, God, Scott's God of hope. Fill me, Lord, Scott, with all your joy and peace as I trust in you that I may overflow with your hope by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray throughout the day. I wrote on a card. I kept it with me. And I talked about it in groups. And God stayed beside me. And then and then it all worked out uh, in the most beautiful transformational experience of my life. And I experienced the risk of hope, trusting in God, and everything that we advocate, I had to live, which is Interesting how God makes it always seems to be that way, that you can't give away what you don't have, as Anna said. And, and so my faith has grown, my hope has grown because of that experience. Um, and that's what I encourage our, our listeners to. If you're in a dark night of the soul, if you're struggling to find hope, if you're wanting to be truly known, these groups, this process truly is life-saving and life-changing. Um, and what is impossible for man is possible with God, and he can restore hope in the darkest situations. I've lived it, and I'm living it now. There is hope. So if you are struggling to find hope in your life, and you need a place where hope can be infused into your heart and into your head, uh, signing up for a small group is a great place to start. Um, a place where you'll be warmly loved and accepted, where people will see and believe the best in you and will cheer you on to help you uh, grasp hold of uh, the goals that you would set for your life for change and transformation and to walk alongside you and cheer you on every step of the way. So we would love to see your smiling or not smiling face in our small group. We will love you right as you are. Just Take the risk and walk through the doors. Well, you heard it from Scott and Nana, who are living it and experiencing it themselves. And as we said at the beginning, that hope inspires the good to reveal itself. And so if you are in a place where you need some good to be revealed, um, please, no, no one can do this alone. Or should have to. The journey um, on the path of freedom is just not meant to, to go alone. So visit us at restoresmallgroups.org to learn more about online and in-person groups you can participate in. But until we meet back here again, friends, stay on the path and take care.